0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, As you know, we are in a sermon series looking at the Apostles' Creed, the oldest and most widely accepted creed of the church. Our word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And as we have been working through the Apostles' Creed, you might have noticed that it's structured around three main uh, sections I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and I believe in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Now this middle section about Jesus is by far the lengthiest in the the creed because it is our belief in Jesus that makes us Christian. Other religions can affirm a belief in a God as Father and Creator, but as obvious as it might seem, it's worth saying that it is belief in Christ that is at the center of the Christian faith and is at the heart of our creed. And so in the Apostles' Creed, Christians for nearly 2,000 years have affirmed their belief in a historical Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered, was crucified, died in Judea. And we affirm that Jesus is God come to dwell with us, and he triumphed over death and rules as the world's true king and will return again someday to make all things new. So all that to say, it is a big deal to be able to say that we believe this. And this morning, if you are not in a place where you're able to say that this morning, that's okay. We invite you to stick around and kick the tires. But for those of you who know this Jesus, I pray that our faith will be strengthened this morning as we fix our eyes on him. And today we're going to be looking at a passage in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 as we explore the words, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. It's also printed in your order of worship. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom we appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray uh, that you would meet us wherever we find ourselves this morning, in faith, outside of faith. And I pray, Father, this this image that the writer of Hebrews gives us of Jesus, the glorious Son, would indeed captivate us. Father, that by your spirit you would open our eyes to be able to see him, that you would open our ears so that we might hear his word this morning. May you do that for us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my, uh, my freshman year of high school, I told my dad that I needed a computer to be able to write papers for school. Now, we never had much money growing up, but my dad always felt like he had something better than money. He had connections. He always knew a guy who knew a guy, and that guy could get a computer for really cheap. So a week or or so later, my dad brings home a computer. My new computer. And on the side of the box, it said, Gateway 2000, Intel 486 DX33 processor. Now I didn't know much about computers, I still don't know much about computers, but in 1993, that sounded pretty dang cool and futuristic. But after a few weeks or so of using the computer, I suspected that something was wrong with it. Uh, The first thing was that it took a really long time to start up. Like, I would turn it on, I would go eat dinner, watch a show, and then come back to see if it was ready. And after a short time of using it, the computer would start to overheat and activate its internal fan, which frantically began humming at an uncomfortable decimal. And then one day, about a week or so later, it just completely shut down. And it shut down at the worst possible time when I was partway through writing a class paper and I had lost everything. So I told my dad, And that's when I learned that this was not a stock Gateway 2000 486 computer, as it has said on the box. My dad's friend of a friend had actually built this computer from spare parts of other computers that had previously died, that had previously been deceased. And that's when we found out that he was actually the only one who could fix this computer. So we had to come by our house time and time again over a couple of years to keep this beast of a computer limping along until I was finally ready to uh, to buy myself a brand new Toshiba laptop, which I did after saving much money. Now, the contrast between the experience of those two machines was like night and day. When I brought that laptop home, I cannot tell you how glorious it felt to have a computer that started up right when I opened it. It processed so quickly. It processed quickly enough to write papers and to play games on, and I never ever lost one of my papers because it had autosave. Now on paper, both of these computers, the old and the new, had lots of the same kinds of parts. And the piece together one kind of met my most basic needs. But I felt like, finally, finally, this is what a computer was meant to be. Now, the author of Hebrews is reminding his readers that they have experienced a kind of transition similar to this, but obviously much more earth-shattering. Throughout the Old Testament, God revealed himself through prophetic words and visions and dreams and commandments to show his people sketches of who he was so that they would know him and be able to make their their way into this world. And These older revelations were expansive, but they were incomplete. Knowing God through prophecies and dreams is not the relationship that we were built for. So now finally, the writer says that God's people get to experience the fullness of who he is. The exact portrait of God in Jesus. And in Jesus, we find every good thing that we need need to live a life that is fully human. Experiencing God face to face. So if we look back at our passage in the original language verses 1 through 4 are actually one single sentence built around the main clause, God has spoken. And I think this is a, first, is a good first place to go, to go ahead and pause and reflect on the fact that our author begins with a premise that God speaks. This is an assumption that the writer obviously believed his audience shared. And we know this because he's invoking their ancient family stories. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now right away, these original Jewish Christian readers would have thought of a hundred stories. Moses walking the Israelites out of Egypt under Pharaoh's nose. The prophet Samuel as a small boy hearing the voice of God calling him in a dream. The prophet Nathan telling King David a story that unveiled God's compassion for Uriah, the man David had murdered to cover up his adultery. And the way that God had spoken and revealed himself to the Israelites had shaped their whole way of seeing the world, the ordering of their society. The value and dignity they assigned to human life and their ideas about what happiness and goodness were. And part of the author's point here is that God speaking, God revealing himself to his people in the Old Testament required a mediator. It required a prophet like Moses or a priest to approach the altar of God on the people's behalf. There was always this layer of distance between an ordinary person and God's presence. There was always a buffer. But now the writer of Hebrews says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Hear this tectonic shift. God has spoken to us. I want you to hear the intimacy of this statement. Jesus coming as the Word in flesh is God speaking to us. And God speaks clearly in a way that you and I can access. He speaks with the voice of Jesus and through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But there's no denying that it can be hard for us to tune in to the sound of His voice above the din of other voices that clamor for our attention. We have all sorts of voices that vie to turn our heads and capture our hearts. And they speak about what is valuable in this world. What's worth our time and our attention and our money. We have political voices on both the left and the right, preaching righteousness through identifying with the right social outlook and ideology. We have voices at home and at work calling us to be successful and defining what that means. Church, we have, we have voices left over from our past, telling us that we're smart or that we're dumb or we're the best or that will never live up. And so here's the question this morning. How, how do we discern and cling to the voice of Jesus who speaks to us? Now one sure way is to immerse ourselves in the word God has given us. Jesus' spirit is alive and active, and as we read the scriptures, those words become nourishment for our souls. Ask just about anyone who has found life in their walk with Jesus. And they will tell you that the words of Scripture have revealed God's intimate voice. What he most wants to say to them personally with power and purpose. The other way that we can begin to discern the voice of Jesus is to learn how to test the voices that we hear as we make our way in this world. Because we learn in scripture what Jesus' voice is like. Jesus' voice is unfailingly kind and merciful and faithful. The writer of Hebrews will say later in the book that Jesus became like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest who understands every sorrow and temptation that we face. And in the book of Romans, we read that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so any voice that is not kind or merciful or faithful is not of the Lord. Please hear that. And I think this is so important that we need to remind each other of this often. Because most people go throughout life with a voice of accusation that kind of lives with them, Kind of like my computer, humming at an uncomfortable decimal. And it becomes so familiar that we may at some point decide that it must be true and assign that voice to Jesus. But let's be clear about something. Jesus has an enemy. And the Bible has all sorts of names for that enemy. The thief, the father of lies, the accuser, Satan. And whatever we call the enemy of God, it is summed up by the word evil. Now, it doesn't take much looking to see the evil that is at work in our world. We see it with the systematic oppression in our city and in every single shooting. We see it when our politicians of every stripe lie and work for their own gain. We see it at every news report of child abuse and human trafficking that we hear on the news. And since we see the grim magnitude of evil at work out there, it should not surprise us that evil also works by speaking to us. And we discern the voice of evil primarily by its tone. Evil speaks to us in accusation. And these accusations may sound something like this. I messed up again and I don't have any self-control. I'm a fraud. I never know what to say. I ruin relationships. I'm a bad dad, I'm a bad mom, I'm a bad friend. But here's the good news, church. Jesus doesn't talk to us like this. We read in Colossians 1 verse 22 that God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul is saying that God holds no accusation against us because of Jesus. And we, we see an example of Jesus' tone in our gospel lesson that was read this morning from John 4. We read about how Jesus interacts and spoke to a Samaritan woman about her sin. Jesus says, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband he says it with such kindness, with compassion. But how do we know? How do we know? We know because the woman responds by running back to her village and tells everyone she can find to come and meet this Jesus who has told her everything that she has ever done. People don't do this when they have been accused and shamed. Where they go and hide themselves? But she clearly does not feel a shred of condemnation from Jesus. And says she feels seen and invited. You see, the voice of Jesus will always lift up our heads, the voice of Jesus will always speak to us of God's love and restoration. And will speak hard truths about the harm that we have done when we need to hear it. But his voice will never, never be turned on us with accusation. And we can be confident that his tone will always be kind for our good and our restoration. Now, the author goes on to focus his attention in verses two and three on who the son is. And why the exalted Christ is the one that we should listen to as God's final word to us. And he does this by asserting five big claims about who Jesus is. Now I've heard someone call this particular part nosebleed Christology because the statements about Christ are as lofty and elevated as it gets in the New Testament. This is like looking at Jesus from 30,000 feet and getting to see the full magnitude of his glory. The author says that Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. The one through whom the world was created. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature and the one who upholds the universe. You see, church, we are meant to read this in a tone of wonder and awe. The writer is essentially shouting to us, Look at this Jesus. He is glorious. Can you believe this is the God that we know who speaks to us? And you know, the original recipients of this letter desperately needed to see this picture of Jesus, just as we do this morning. Their community was suffering intense persecution because of their faith in Christ. Some of them had their homes and property confiscated because they were Christians, because of their association with Jesus, and others had seen friends imprisoned and killed. And the temptation to drift away into an easier life was very real. The author, though, obviously believes that our ability to persevere through suffering while holding fast to Jesus is in direct proportion to our view of Jesus. So this picture that he gives is meant to remind us of the fact that nothing that exists or happens is outside of Jesus' dominion. And if this is true, who better to entrust our lives to than he and this is what he means when he writes that Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus, the Son, has inherited and rules over all of God's kingdom. There is not one square inch where that isn't true. And he is not like the other political leaders of their day or our day, who use their power to enrich themselves and do whatever is good for them. He rules with righteousness and justice, taking on the cause of the oppressed and healing the words and and healing the wounds of the afflicted. And Jesus pays such such exquisite attention to his dominion because he is its creator. The author calls Jesus the one through whom the world was created and who upholds the universe by the power of his word. And I love this. I love this image. It's the image of God at the very beginning. God sending forth His Son into the nothingness. And through His power, life and activity springs forth from the void with all of its genetic genetic complexity and beauty. And that everything that we take for granted is being upheld by the powerful Word of the Son. The rising and the setting of the sun the four seasons, and the beating of our very hearts right now. All of it is a reflection of his glory, his radiance. And in the Roman world, when an emperor wanted to show his subjects who he was and who they belonged to, he would commission his image to be stamped onto a coin. And that imprint was the character that represented him. And likewise, the the Father's very nature and glory has been precisely represented to us in Jesus' nature, in his humanness. In fact, our passage is saying this morning that if you want to know what the invisible God looks like, look at Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is God's glory in a form that you and I can relate to. He is God's glory in a form that we can have a personal relationship with. This is God who can walk with you through all the storms and uncertainties of life. Because in Jesus, we don't just hear about God, but we experience God himself. And here is what this God has done for us. The author writes that Jesus has made purification for sin and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what I want us to see is that the God of all glory who holds the universe together has taken action for us in Jesus. That on the cross, Jesus experienced the full accusation for sins that we have committed. And because of who he is and what he has done, the Apostle Paul proclaims that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of implications in that statement, but here's one I want us to, to wrestle with, to, to embrace. This means that Jesus is uniquely able to comfort us like no one else can. When the floor drops out from under your life and you feel like you're falling through the earth, Jesus knows it. He knows your sorrow because the floor once dropped out of his life and he fell through the earth into the darkest depths. And yet at the same time, he comes to be near us in our grief and he also assures us that everything will be made new again that he is going to make all things right and we get to experience resurrection we get to experience new life again because he is alive right now and so the question that we're each left with is this do i believe in Jesus Christ God's only son Am I willing to entrust my life to him? Will I attune my ear to his kind voice? Jesus is the final word of God. And the word he speaks is a word of welcome. It is a word of hope. It is a word of promise, of fresh starts and new life. And so church, this morning, let us fix our eyes on him. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, you know what each of us is going through in this moment right now. Father, you not only hear us, you feel our sorrow and our grief. And so, Father, may this image of this glorious Jesus, God's only Son, may it prop us up. May it replace all of those false pictures of Jesus. And may it withhold and withstand all of the suffering that we experience, all of the difficulty that we are going through right now in this moment. And Father, help us to tether our lives to our only hope, our only sure hope. And that is Jesus, God's only Son. We pray these things in His name and for His glory. Amen.